Good morning again, Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's that God's people are not called to condemn sinners, but to invite them to follow us in repenting of our sins because of God's impartial kindness. Let me read that again. God's people are not called to condemn sinners, but to invite them to follow us in repenting of our sins because of God's impartial kindness. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, again, just to make sure we, we keep in front of us the situation here in this church, the churches that were in Rome that, that, that Paul is writing to, there was division between them, between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought themselves the more favored of God because they had the covenant and the law and they were the original chosen people. And then the Gentiles thought themselves more favored because the Jews had been kicked out of Rome for a period of time, and they were the new kids on the block. They had been entrusted uh, with um, the church during the season in which the Jews were not there. And so there was this vying for power, a, a, a hierarchical uh, jockeying, if you will, for the favor of God. And so what we saw in chapter 1 is that Paul was making very clear to the Gentiles of their, reminding them of their need for Jesus. And remember that the key thing that they had done was to suppress the truth. That was the beginning of all of their uh, sinful behavior, right? It wasn't that they um, um, were being excoriated for the various behaviors they were doing. That, that was bad in of itself, but they pointed to something deeper that they were suppressing what was true and clear about God. And for them, it was what they had gained from natural revelation or creation itself. And so now he's pivoting and turning toward the Jews and saying, you also need Jesus. And so he begins straight away in, in, in a beautiful fashion, beautiful rhetorical fashion. You would have, like I said, if you'd have been in that crowd, you'd have been Jewish, you'd have been thinking he is taking the Gentiles to task. And then he makes this deft move here at the beginning of chapter two, where he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And he's not talking to everybody. You can imagine him turning to the other group uh, and saying, you have no excuse yourselves. Now, remember, he had also told the Gentiles that they were without excuse. And so what he's doing is leveling the playing field. He's setting the stage well for chapter three, where he's going to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that all equally need Jesus, which means that all who are redeemed are equally loved by God. 
and there's no vying for position or power, you've been granted the highest status possible in being redeemed. And so he, he tells the Jews that they are without excuse in and of themselves because they are guilty of the very same things that the Gentiles had done. Most importantly, that they too were suppressing the truth when they had the clarity of God's person and work in and through the scriptures, the promises, the covenant, all the covenant reminders, all of the covenant holidays, all of the things that should have kept in front of them their need for the coming Messiah. And so uh, before we, we get into the actual text itself, I want to ask uh, us a question, something for us to think about as we step into this. But what, what sinful behaviors tempt you to harshly judge those who practice them? What are some things that you, you think are particularly noxious and, and somehow in your mind make you not as bad off as them or not as in need of Jesus as the people who do those things? See, even in doing that, you're suppressing the truth about God. You're suppressing the truth that all of our need is equal and that God loves his image bearers. To, to say that God prefers a group of people over another is to suppress the actual truth about God. His character, his love, his, his work in and through Christ, his work in and through the Spirit. These are not things... Uh, that, that are true of God. And so that, for us, to, to practice a, a suppression of the truth, to, to, to judge others more harshly, to even go so far as to condemn them for that sin, is to actually suppress the truth. And it would be important for you to also consider uh, how you have maybe suffered at the hands of others who are, are condemning. What sinful behaviors have others harshly judged you for? And, and it's proved more costly as a result of that. And, and how did that make you feel? How did that, what did that do for you and your affection toward God and Christ? And especially if it came from church folk, which is usually where it comes from. And so we don't want to be inhospitable in this regard. We, we don't want to make others think that their sin can eclipse the cross. That would be a suppressing of the truth of the person and work of Christ. That'd be a suppressing of the beauty of the gospel. And so we need to be aware of the places where we are guilty of this and have suffered from it so as to rightly orient ourselves to the full truth of God and his love for sinners, his pursuit of sinners, his desire to see the family get bigger and the necessity for the church to be hospitable in this regard. So turning back to the text, let's see the shifting sands of judgment and the firm foundation of repentance. So he says, therefore you have no excuse. So the therefore comes from uh, chapter 1, verse 32, where he says this. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so what he's saying is, because you are guilty of this very same thing, because you have uh, ignored the fact that, that the wages of sin, period, are death for everyone who practices sin, which we know everyone practices sin. So all are deserving of death. And so for them to try to tease out and say, well, this group is actually more deserving of death than that group or deserving of a worse death, 
is to suppress the actual truth of the scripture and who God is. And so he says, you are without excuse, O man. And the reason that they are without excuse is because every one of them who judges, which this is very important, that, that it's not an issue of them calling out sin or pointing out someone else's need for Jesus. What they are doing is judging in terms of seeing themselves as better. They're using it to differentiate as well as to condemn which we are not called to do. We as God's people ha have never been called to be the agents of condemnation, right? In fact, later on in, in Romans, Paul's going to make the argument that we aren't to do that at all. In fact, we are to so love our neighbors around us uh, that it would essentially help to purify them, that coals would be heaped upon their head, hopefully to purify them as opposed to judge them in God's wrath. And so this is not our job. This is not what we've been called to do. Remember all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, what, what was the purpose for God choosing Israel? Was it because they were the largest nation? No. Was it because they were the most powerful? No. Was it because they were the most righteous? <laughs> no, certainly not. He chose them purely because of his own electing grace. In fact, he chose them because they were none of those things. And the world would only be able to glorify him in his name when, when he would use them to create a kingdom uh, here on earth. And so they actually failed to bless the nations around them, choosing instead to curse them, condemn them themselves. And what they did actually was to engage in hypocrisy, which we're going to see is, is, is a devastating thing for the people of God. They chose to engage in the very sin of the nations around them and the false worship of false gods. And so he's saying, you are without excuse, every one of you judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And the reason that they condemn themselves is because they're guilty and they practice the very same things. Now, it could be that they were practicing the exact behaviors that were listed there in chapter one, uh, but most importantly, they were guilty of suppressing the truth of God. This is where we need to be really careful, church. There are times where, where we suppress the truth of God, either because we don't know it ourselves, because we, we, we have a biblical illiteracy, or we choose to ignore it. Whether it's you, like a statement like, uh, God just wants me to be happy, and therefore I can do whatever I want. <laughs> no, that is a patently unbiblical statement. That is to suppress the truth of God. Do remember that Paul himself cried out for the Lord to remove the thorn from his flesh three different times. And we don't know exactly what the thorn in his flesh was. There's uh, many different options that have been put on the table, but he never clearly states what it is. Whatever it is, it causes him great pain uh, and agony and unhappiness. And so he asks the Lord for it to be removed, which we are told to do. That's something that is a biblical thing to do, to ask the Lord to heal us or to remove something. But if the Lord chooses not to, right, and, and what he tells Paul specifically there is, or Christ speaks specifically to that it is in Paul's weakness that Christ's strength is evidence. Christ is exalted in his unhappiness, his brokenness, and his weakness. Now, that, that's not 100% across the board in every circumstance, but there is a moment, a time, a possibility for that to be true in our lives. And so for us, to whitewash that out of possibility for us to say that, no, God wouldn't do that in my life, is to say that somehow we are better than Paul. Well, that can't be true. 
None of us are more obedient than Paul. Paul even says there's no one probably on earth or in history that can boast as much as he could given his pedigree. And yet he chooses not to boast in those things. And so there are ways in which we have to look at ourselves first. We have to deal with the plank in our own eye. How are we suppressing the truth of God? Are we in some way suppressing the truth of God by saying God would never make me suffer? Well, the New Testament speaks to suffering. In fact, that has been our, part of our benediction week in and week out during this Roman series. It is suffering that actually produces character and, and endurance and hope, which does not put us to shame because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to suffer in union with Christ. And so we are suppressing the truth of God when we reduce uh, the, the Christian life to only that which is easy or good, or makes us happy, or makes us look good. That is foolishness. Or when we try to make a hierarchical ranking of sins. Again, and I've said this before, there are some earthly consequences that are greater for some sins than others. That is not the same thing as, it be, as all sin being equally separating of us from God. With the greatest uh, separation occurring in our suppressing of the truth, think about how that creates um, the, 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 the greatest portion of that distance. It's not that it's a greater sin, but it is the foundational sin. It is the arrogance uh, that, that is displayed when we say that can't be true or God didn't really say that, especially when he said it clearly. And so this is what they are guilty of. They, they are practicing the very same things. They are suppressing the truth. They are engaging in some of these behaviors. And, and he goes on, and Paul makes it very clear here. He, he's stepping away from the argument just a, a moment to make a, a clarification. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he's saying, look, God's not a benevolent grandfather who's going to ignore this stuff. It's not that that we are, uh, because we're not condemning it, God doesn't. No, it is God alone who can judge. He is the plumb line. It is His holiness, His righteousness by which things will be measured, not ours. So he's saying here, God is and will be just. He will deal with this, but it is critical that we recognize that, that He's going to deal with it in us as well. Do remember judgment begins in the house of the Lord. See, this is why the church has to mature in its ability to assess itself to, to call for repentance within itself, to actually practice and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, admitting where we're wrong and being willing to do the hard work of restoration uh, where we are called to because we've been equipped with the fullness of God's blessing and banquet. We have been blessed with the finished work of Christ. We've been blessed with the Holy Spirit and all of God's promises so as to be able to honor and glorify Him in everything. There's nothing that we could step into when it comes to repentance, when it comes to bowing low, that is actually going to cost us Christ. No, if anything, it'll help us to more profoundly see how deep the Father's love for us. And so he, he, he wants to make clear here that it's not these things will not go undealt with. It's just not for us to deal with them in condemnation. In fact, the way they are best dealt with is in and through repentance. And so as he goes on, he says, do you, he now turns and says now, and he's speaking to the Jews here, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, one of the things that Jew, the Jews struggle with is 
because they, they saw themselves, and Paul's going to deal with this actually more uh, deeply in Romans chapter 9, but they thought because they were of Abraham that they, they had been circumcised, that they kept the holidays, they did the things that Jews are called to do, they were obedient in the basics, that that meant they were in that they would not be judged in the same way that the Gentiles who didn't have all those things were going to be judged. Paul's making it clear here, that's not what saves you. That is not what sets you apart. For us, it's not because you went to church with your grandmother. It's not because you go to church on a weekly basis now. It's not because you tithe. It's not because you serve. It's not because you, you haven't done certain things or committed certain sins or kept yourself pure in various ways. None of that saves you. All of those things are good reflections and outworkings of your repentance, of your savedness. Those are things that should occur, obviously, in the process of sanctification, not justification. They don't justify you before God. What they do is help mature you in understanding the depths of God's love for you in and through the person and work of Christ. And so he's making clear to the Jews there's no particular distinction that means you're going to be judged differently. There's, there's not a, a, a judgment for this kind of person and a different judgment for that kind of person. No, it is all one judgment. Again, against the plumb line, against the holiness and righteousness of God, against whether or not we are declared righteous in Christ. And so as he goes on, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, that God's not showing particular favor to any group of people in, in, in taking his time uh, to, to, to bring about either redemption or judgment. Think of what we heard in 2 Peter 3 when we went through the, Peter's letters some time ago, and we've brought it up often. The, the world looks at the circumstance and says, Does, is, is God tarrying? Where is he? If he's, if he's coming, if he's going to make all things new, if he's going to judge justly, where is he? Why doesn't he go ahead and do that? Well, Peter explains very clearly that the reason that he tarries is he wants the family to get bigger and bigger. Paul's saying something very similar here. His patience, his forbearance, that means the, the, the time in which um, he, he doesn't come in and judge or render judgment, that is intended as a kindness to the sinner so as to be led to repentance. It was true for us, which we tend to forget, right? Time can, can compress and shorten as we look back at it. We tend to think we were sinners less time than we really were. We tend to think that we weren't as bad as we really were or as in need as we really were. We forget those things. We need not. We need to remember who we were without Jesus, not in a worm theology fashion, not in a, a self-immolating fashion, but, but as a way of giving thanks and being humbled by how deeply God loves us in Christ. And, it, and since we were granted that and we were given the hospitality, this is a, a description of God's hospitality, to be patient, forbearing, and kind. That is a, those are hospitable descriptions that he would wait for us, that he would, he would continue to bear with us, that he would condescend and pursue us. We are to display these same characteristics to those who are suppressing the truth. 
This is so upside down from the way we think and from the way we often act, right? Often our treatment of those who are suppressing the truth is to treat them as enemies, as those who are not welcome at our table, as those who would not be welcome to ask questions or critique our church, as those who are not welcome in our small groups or our homes or other circumstances because they think so differently than us or if they engage in a particular lifestyle or sin. And again, we're not saying that we're not called to warn people. But again, how do you lead someone to repentance if you don't warn them of the destruction that is due their behavior? If they don't ultimately know that their suppressing of of God's truth is going to be devastating to them eternally. We do have to get to that at some point, but often we need to earn the right to, to be able to be heard in that regard. They got to know that we love them and that we genuinely care for them and we are going to be patient with them. We are going to forbear with them. We are going to show them kindness. And too often we do quite the opposite and choose instead to prefer a much safer and cleaner environment as if that is what's going to keep our kids, our youth in the church. What's interesting is many of those who have departed from our church in that 18 to 25 category, the critique often is you guys don't seem to care about sinners. You guys don't seem to be interested in engaging with those who are perishing and struggling or um, those who are marginalized, those who are without hope. Well, that is a fair critique. I don't know that it's entirely accurate in total, especially for our local church, but it is worth us hearing from them and asking, turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, is this true? Are you speaking out of the mouths of the babes of our church? Is this something we need to hear? Is there an inhospitality in us? How, how are we treating many of our youth and college students who, who come to have questions, who have to come to faith uh, in and through their own way. They, they can't, they're not saved because they grew up in your house. They're not saved because you've brought them to church. They have to come to a knowledge of Christ as Savior in and through their own paths, in and through their own questions, in and in through their own doubts, in and in through their own sufferings, just as we did. We have to be patient with that process. We have to forbear in that process. We need to rush forward with kindness to those who are in that process. Too often we can be dismissive, one of the greatest and most noxious sins of all towards our fellow uh, humans. When we dismiss them, what does that say about their value? What does that communicate in terms of hospitality, in terms of their place in the church? And so here, what, what Paul is trying to explain to them is, is this, these characteristics of God were to be displayed in and through them as Abraham's people. Like if they, they want to emphasize their status in Abraham, this should have been it. This should have been who they are. They would display the characteristics of God so as to bless the surrounding nation, so as to bless the Gentiles, so as to bless others. But instead, they were presuming upon it. They were looking at it, looking at that patience and forbearance as opportunity for them to continue in sin or them to think that God's not just. All of those things are the suppression of the truth of God. And then he goes on to say, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here he's giving the sober warning. 
If you continue in this way, if you continue with a hardened heart and you are impenitent, that is evidence that you are not in union with Christ. Only the humble and the repentant can come. Uh, those who would say, I, I'm better than someone else, is a clear declaration that they are suppressing the truth about Christ and they don't understand the gospel. If we do that, we are evidencing that we may not be who we think we are. This is sobering and worthy of, using Paul's language from another letter, uh, worthy of us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, not doubt and, and, um, and anxiety. No, that's not the same thing. Fear and trembling is a posture of humility. Lord, may, may I be uh, who you have declared me to be in union with Christ. And that is always going to be evidenced in humility and repentance. If you are not bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, this should sober you. This is a call, a merciful call from the Lord our God to say, this is who you should look like. But if you look hard-hearted and impenitent, something is deeply wrong. If you don't care about the means of grace, if you don't think that there are people who can be forgiven, these are troubling thoughts that we should mortify. We should recognize their need to be crucified in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. And so this is a gracious warning to us. This is something that we need to take stock of in our own lives. There are ways in which we as a church are inhospitable to those who need it the most. Listen to what John Stott says about this passage. He says, this is not a call either to suspend our critical faculties or to renounce all criticism and rebuke of others as illegitimate. See, Paul does this. Throughout his letters, he, he calls sin, sin, and he lets people know that it's going to be destructive, the ways in which it is destroying them, the ways in which it is separating them from God. This we must do. This, this is, it's not that, you know, the, the, old, the ways in which our modern culture says, well, you can't judge anybody. No, you're right. We can't condemn anyone. We can't judge anyone as um, less than us. We can't judge someone worthy of, of hell. But what we can do is rightly judge in wisdom the behaviors, rightly judge the evidences that are being presented as to who's, who and whose they are and the need that they actually have. Uh, everybody does that in some form or fashion. We just try to act as if at times uh, we, we are more humble than we really are. But John Stott goes on. He says, it is rather a prohibition of standing in judgment on other people and condemning them, which as human beings, we have no right to do, especially when we fail to condemn ourselves. For this is the hypocrisy of the double standard, a high standard for other people and a comfortably low one for ourselves. We've said this on a few occasions. Frequently, we are legalistic or judgmental, swift in wanting justice for other people, but become incredibly licentious and gracious toward ourselves and our own sin. We don't, we're not in any way, shape, or form equal in how we treat those things. Some people actually flip that, interestingly, and are very hard on themselves and very easy on other people. The fact of the matter is we're not to be condemning at all either of ourselves or of other people. We are to rightly judge for the purpose of relationship and orientation, but not in terms of eternal state. And so the question that I have for us is, how has God led you to repentance through his kindness, forbearance, and patience? 
this would be a great thing for you to meditate on this Lord's Day Sabbath and, and share that with somebody to give thanks to God for the, the places where he clearly was forbearing with you. Not allowing you to continue in sin, but allowing you the opportunity to, to be restored. And think about the ways in which either people, a word he brought to you either through his word or other people, a well-timed phone call, text message, email, some way, somehow, he, he was trying to engage you, and yet you took his kindness. You presumed upon that forbearance, patience, and kindness as license for you to continue in sin, possibly. But where you didn't, where you turned and repented, we, we want to give thanks to God for that. So take time today to consider where he has done that um, and, and grow in your ability to see the places where he is doing that at current. And then, and then another question for us to consider is how are you then reflecting these same characteristics, patience, forbearance, and kindness uh, towards those in your spheres of influence who are suppressing the truth of God and is evidencing it in a variety of sinful behaviors. This is important. If you, if you can't think of any place where you're reflecting the character of God, and these are but three of those characteristics, you can't think of a place where you are being hospitable to sinners and, and inviting them uh, to repentance and, and using your own example uh, to, to, as part of that invitation, right? That's critical that we show the way. That we, if you're going to make a disciple, you've got to be a disciple. And a key element of being a disciple is bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And that's not a one-time, one-off deal. That is an ongoing reality. That we are ongoing in our repenting and, and being humble. In fact, James tells us we are to confess our sins to one another, something we don't do very often. As part of that, it should trouble us if we, if we never hear uh, someone repenting, if we never hear of someone confessing of struggle and need for Jesus. It should be troubling if you don't do that. And so we want to be a church that, that emphasizes these things, that exemplifies these things, that is hospitable in inviting others into a life of repentance and a life of not just need of Jesus, but being redeemed and restored to God in and through union with Christ, being filled with the Spirit, a people of joy because of this fact, instead of being sour and dour because we're constantly judging and condemning either the world or each other or even ourselves. So Romans 2, 1 through 5 teaches us that God's people are not called to condemn sinners. That is so important. If you are struggling with that in some way, shape, or form. If you're, you're not quite sure what that means or all the implications of that, come talk to me. Come talk to any of the staff members, any of the elders or deacons. Let's work this out because if we, if we can't get out from under uh, this, uh, this weight, this need to condemn, this need to, to call for the destruction of others, this need to, to seem better than others, smarter than others, more holy than others, we can't go any, we can't grow. There's no way for us to mature. So if you're struggling with this in some way, shape, or form and wondering what are the full implications of this and you've got some practical examples or some questions, please ask them. Let's hash through this. But God's people are not called to condemn sinners, but to invite them to follow us in repenting of our sins because of God's, this word is important, impartial kindness. His kindness is not partial. It is offered to any and all who would receive. Not all do. Some in arrogance 
choose to go their own way and, 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 and choose instead to suppress, continue in their suppression of the truth of God. And so, church, would you join me in, in examining ourselves and taking some time to put our hearts before the Holy Spirit and ask the Spirit to show us where we are prone to condemn or to create some sort of hierarchy of sin and righteousness? And then would you have the courage to repent of that, to mortify that in Christ, to see that crucified so that we could mature in becoming a more hospitable church that, that evidences the fruits of, of repentance and invites others into that same process? And it may be small things, it may be big things, but would you join me in praying that, that because of God's original divine invitation to us in and through Christ, that we would be hospitable to others who desperately need Jesus, which means they're going to be sinners who suppress the truth, which means they're going to be messy, which means they're going to have questions, which means they're not going to get it all right in, in one moment in time. It's going to be a process. We must be patient and forbear and be kind as God has been to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience and forbearance and kindness with us that leads us to repentance, that is not intended to, to uh, uh, make us more sinful. It's not intended to make us more licentious or think we're getting away with something or to think uh, that you are, are, are not there or don't care. It's also not intended to serve as a trap so you can spring it on us and judge us insanely harshly. No. Your patience and forbearance are a true kindness to us who are sinners and in need of a Savior, who are slow to repent, who are quick to judge and condemn. Thank you, Lord, that you are, you are not quick to judge and condemn, that you take your time, even though sometimes it drives us crazy. Even the psalmist in Psalm 73 wrestles with this idea, how is it that the wicked continue to prosper how is it they are not judged quickly? Habakkuk wrestled with this with, with, with his own people. He couldn't understand what you were waiting for. And yet what we recognize is that that forbearance and patience, that is so that people would be drawn to you before the, the final judgment falls. We do know you are a just God, that, that sin will be judged, and we thank you for that too. And so help us to be a church, Lord, that is hospitable and in, in, in leads others by repenting first. That we recognize that judgment begins in the house of the Lord, not in the world, not in the culture, not in the government, in the church. Why does that not sober us more than it ought? Help us be sobered, Lord. Help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which just means humility and honesty. Help us to long to look more like you for the life of the world. In Christ's name, amen.